Hello, and welcome to episode 29 of The Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. I took a bit of a break from releasing episodes for The Forensic Files, but I'm happy to say I'm back now. Today, we're talking about an incredibly troubling case. I want to give a trigger warning right at the start that I'll be discussing kidnapping, false imprisonment, torture, rape, and sexual abuse. I don't necessarily like to share graphic details, but in this case, it's pretty necessary to understand what happened to then comprehend how the case progressed through the legal system. I want to talk about the abduction, imprisonment, and abuse of Colleen Stan by Cameron Hooker. On May 19, 1977, Colleen left her home in Eugene, Oregon to visit a friend in Westwood, California. She planned to hitchhike a majority of the 400-mile journey. Hitchhiking was a much more common occurrence in the 1970s, but it was incredibly dangerous for many women. Colleen picked her rides carefully, or so she thought, turning down rides from those she thought posed a threat, like a car full of men. She took two rides that got her to the state of California. She then turned down a few other rides before accepting a ride from Cameron Hooker and his wife Janice. They seemed more trustworthy than others since they had a baby with them in the car. There were a few incidents at the very beginning of the ride that gave Colleen pause, a mysterious box next to her on the back seat being one of them. Hooker stopped at a gas station where Colleen used the restroom, later recalling having this urgent feeling to escape out the window and run really far away from the situation. Unfortunately, she ignored this feeling and got back in Hooker's car. Hooker then steered the conversation to that of the ice caves he said were nearby, asking Colleen if she would mind a detour to see them. Hooker drove the car to a very isolated location confronted Colleen with a knife, bound and gagged her, and forced her head into the strange box that had been sitting next to her in the back seat. The box was hot, dark, and sound deterrent. Hooker took Colleen to the couple's house, forced her into another box in their basement that was about three feet high and barely large enough to fit her body, along with keeping her head still in the box. He chained her arms above her head, placed a spiky object between her legs, and constricted her breathing with a tight strap across her chest. She was unable to see or hear anything, she was unable to move, and she was barely able to breathe. She was also completely naked. Hooker kept Colleen in this state for five months. He moved her from the initial three-foot box after the first week, into more of a coffin-shaped box. She was only allowed to leave the box once a day to eat, drink, and go to the bathroom, all under Hooker's close supervision. She was under his complete control. Hooker routinely beat Colleen. He practiced bondage on her to constrict her breathing. He tied her to a rack. He electrically shocked her, burned her, nearly drowned her, among other very torturous activities. Colleen's estimate was that he hung and whipped her almost a hundred times 
in the first six months of her captivity. In January of 1988, after eight months of this, Hooker gave Colleen a document to read and sign named This Indenture. He told Colleen an organization called The Company consisted of a network of human traffickers that took and sold women into captivity. The document was a slavery contract mirroring something Hooker saw in an underground newsletter for people interested in sadomasochism. He had copied a sample contract he read in an article from that newsletter. He took efforts to make the document look as formal and official as possible, more believable to Colleen, complete with an official-looking seal at the bottom. Hooker showed Colleen the contract, along with the article, as a way of convincing her that the company was real and knew of their arrangement. This was the first time Colleen had been able to see without the box on her head in eight months. The contract subjected Colleen to Hooker's complete control and domination over her. It gave Colleen a new name, the letter K, and she was to refer to Hooker only as Master or Sir. Colleen was presented with the option of signing the contract or risking being sold into slavery by the company. Colleen chose to stay with Hooker, and for the next several years, she lived under his complete control. She spent most of her time in a box under the couple's bed. Hooker's wife was torn. She actively helped him kidnap, confine, and torture Colleen, and even typed up the contract. But she also realized it was morally wrong. The couple's children knew about Colleen as well, and when they were old enough to verbalize their thoughts, they started asking questions about why Colleen was always chained up. After so many years of being dominated, Colleen learned to ask for permission to do anything and everything, from eating to going to the bathroom. Colleen was gradually granted greater relative freedom, even being allowed to leave the house unattended. In March of 1981, Hooker let Colleen visit her family, on the condition that she not tell them anything about her time with Hooker. If she did, he said the company would kill anyone she told. Her family was shocked at her return after four years of complete radio silence. She told no one about her time with Hooker, but her family was troubled by her behavior and somewhat vague responses to their questions. Hooker came back to pick up Colleen after her two-day visit with her family. She then spent three more years under his control. Hooker reverted to placing Colleen back in the box after allowing her to live outside for a whole year. The only reason Colleen escaped from this terrible situation is because of Hooker's wife. In 1983, Hooker expressed the urge to abduct more women and create somewhat of a group of slaves for himself. Janice, his wife, was already very uncomfortable with just one girl in the house undergoing this treatment, and she drew the line at the thought of more women. She did not like that Hooker had sexual relations with Colleen and began attending church, turning to religion to bring her comfort and answers. 
1984, Janice finally told members of her congregation, including the pastor, about some of the details regarding Colleen, referring to it as a love triangle, and conveniently leaving out the part where they abducted her and held her against her will. She then told Colleen that the company didn't exist, and that Hooker had been lying to her for years. The next day, Colleen waited until Hooker had left the house for work, and then she made her escape. She called him from the bus station to tell him she was leaving and returned to her family. She then told her family the whole truth about what she had been through over the previous seven years. Colleen initially didn't intend on going to the police, but one of Hooker's family friends ended up notifying them later that same year. Hooker was arrested for kidnapping, false imprisonment, and a slew of sexual offenses. At this point, I just have to warn you, there's a whole lot of victim blaming in the details of this trial. The defense certainly hung their hat on that. The whole defense was based on Colleen's supposed compliance with Hooker. They claimed that she chose to stay there of her own free will because she didn't try to escape. Colleen's demeanor seemed to support the defense's claims. She didn't really appear all that quote-unquote traumatized, not what you might expect someone in captivity for that long to act after breaking free. Even her testimony was devoid of all emotion, robotic even. The prosecution was concerned that her behavior might signal consent for some of her actions. The defense tried to get the sexual offenses dismissed because they claimed they were consensual, even if the kidnapping had not been. The prosecution brought in an expert on terrorism, hostage negotiations, brainwashing, and coercion to explain Colleen's state of mind and her behaviors. Remember, everyone reacts differently to trauma, and just because someone doesn't display emotions you deem appropriate for a situation doesn't mean they don't experience that trauma, and doesn't make their experience invalid. The expert, Dr. Chris Hatcher, had consulted on other high-profile cases, including Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Though Hatcher admitted brainwashing was a pretty rare phenomenon and didn't necessarily apply to Colleen's case, he saw coercion as a continuum with brainwashing at the very extreme meaning Colleen may not have been at this most extreme end of coercion, but it doesn't mean she did not experience it. He testified that all of the details pertaining to Colleen's experience are forms of coercion, and that in some, they would be sufficient to coerce a majority of individuals to exhibit specific desired behaviors and abandon any resistant behaviors. He then described how coercion can affect an individual, making someone not be able to see disorients them. They have no concept of what time of day it is or even how many days have passed. Controlling when and what someone eats and when they use the restroom breaks down any sense of personal privacy. Consistent and repeated physical and sexual abuse break down the will of a person and signal a somewhat permanent and irreversible change. Isolation creates dependency on the captor. As it had been years since the initial abduction, 
Hooker attempted to take advantage of the statute of limitations by questioning details about how the abduction happened, while at the same time dampening the severity of his actions overall. The defense had their own expert, Dr. Donald Lund, a forensic psychiatrist with expertise in human captivity and coercion. He had consulted on another high-profile case, Patty Hearst. Lund conveniently limited his definition of coercion to a, quote, psychological phenomenon that is present when someone has threatened someone else directly with death. He claimed that the law didn't allow threats against other people to fall under this very narrow definition of coercion. Interesting tactic to try invalidating the prosecution's case on a technicality. He was trying to insinuate that because Hooker threatened Colleen's family and not her directly, that Hooker had not coerced her. At this point, the judge interrupted Dr. Lund and said he was incorrect. The prosecution objected to his testimony as being prejudicial, which the judge agreed with, instructing the jury to disregard Dr. Lund's definition of coercion. But this wasn't the only time the judge intervened. He had serious questions about Dr. Lund's claims that the torture techniques Hooker used on Colleen were akin to Marine Corps attention drills, and the judge even questioned the expert himself during the trial. This is pretty significant and came back as a point in Hooker's appeal. The jury ultimately found Hooker guilty of seven of the eight counts, including kidnapping and several counts of rape. He was sentenced to consecutive sentences for the sexual offenses and 1 to 25 years for the kidnapping. The total sentence equaled over 100 years. The judge made a statement to the jury after they had read their verdict, which was pretty surprising. And I want to read part of it for you. He stated, quote, I want to particularly commend you for having the intelligence to reject the testimony of Dr. Donald Lund, the defense psychiatrist. I think witnesses like that are a real menace to the criminal justice system. They come in here posing as objective scientists when in fact they're nothing but paid advocates. I'm happy that you had the good sense to see through him because one Dan White case is enough." End quote. Remember, Dan White was a reference to the Twinkie defense case that I mentioned in episode one. Of course, Hooker appealed his conviction, and he had a little bit of weight to stand on, given the judge's behavior and subsequent statement to the jury. He claimed the judge was an advocate for Colleen by questioning Dr. Lund in such a way that he did. The appellate court did not agree. Hooker's attorney had the opportunity to object the judge's questioning and failed to make a notion for a mistrial at the end of the trial. Though the judge's comments seem biased, they came after the jury had made their decision, and by all appearances, the judge did not display any outward bias during the actual proceedings. The only note by the appellate court was that the failure of Hooker's attorney to object to the judge's questioning pointed out a different issue that he may not have had competent legal representation, though there are many reasons other than incompetence that an attorney may have let the judge proceed. The court didn't believe it negatively impacted the results of his case. There was far more physical evidence to secure a guilty verdict. 
Colleen unfortunately experienced many difficulties following the trial, including extreme anxiety and phobias. On a lighter note, Colleen went on to be a volunteer as a counselor for a crisis hotline which helped victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. Thank you for listening to episode 29. If you enjoy this podcast, you might like my new podcast called Undetermined, Deaths, Disappearances, and Mysteries. Episodes 1 and 2 are now available everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on Instagram at theforensicfilespod or at undeterminedpod. If you want to support this podcast, please subscribe, download episodes, leave a review, and tell your friends. You can listen to The Forensic Files on our website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen anywhere you get podcasts. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.